Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. At the beginning of February, London Mayor Sadiq Khan stood at a podium at City Hall. Behind him was a photo of a nine-year-old girl beaming, looking so happy. The mayor, though, was somber. More than 10 years have passed since Ella's death. But anyone who's ever lost anyone close to them will tell you the hurt and grief never go away. And I know this is especially true for a mother who's lost a child. That smiling girl, Ella Adu Kissy Debra, died from acute respiratory failure after an asthma attack in 2013. Seven years later, a coroner ruled the air quality near her home contributed to her death. And Ella became the first person in the UK to have air pollution cited on their death certificate. The circumstances in which Ella died only make this burden harder to bear because we know if action had been taken sooner to improve the air quality around her home, Ella could have been protected and Ella might have been with us here today. Knowing that London has been deprived of a bright, happy nine-year-old girl who dreamed of becoming an air ambulance doctor because Rosamond and her family were failed is a reality we simply can't ignore. So as the Mayor of London, on behalf of the Greater London Authority and our city, I offer a full and unqualified apology for not acting sooner to tackle air pollution, which ultimately led to the tragic death of Ella Adu Kissy Deborah. That apology was part of London's settlement of a lawsuit that Ella's family launched against the city, along with three departments of the UK government. And by the way, the action against them is still before the courts. It's all part of one mother's fight for the right to clean air. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Rosamond Adu Kissy Deborah, you were there the day the mayor apologized. I'm wondering what's coming up for you as you hear his words again about your daughter. Goodness, I was just thinking, it really hits different just sitting here quietly listening to it, Laura. It it gives me goosebumps. The sadness when I hear what happened to her, that never goes away. She would have been 20 now. And I, I really hope that no one else travels this same journey um, a journey where rushing your child to hospital, resuscitating your child is not anything I would wish on anybody else. As you said, there's action ongoing. It's something I would like all governments, not just the UK, to recognise. They all know about the impact of air pollution on everybody's health. It is a- an invisible killer. Uh, it contributes to so many non-communal diseases and my hope going forward is 
they will everywhere really do public health campaigns. We need to reduce our fossil fuel because it was emissions which triggered off Ella's asthma. If it wasn't for emissions where we live, she wouldn't have got ill and she wouldn't have died on that fatal night. Well, I'm I'm so sorry for the sadness and and more I'm I'm so sorry that that you lost Ella. Before we go into this any more, Rosamond, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And I really appreciate it because it's a global issue. It is. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. I just want to pull back for a second, though, because I'm, I mentioned the photograph of Ella that, that Sadiq Khan stood in front of, and I looked at that photograph, and she just looks like such a vibrant girl. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about what she was like. Yeah, that picture was her last school trip. So Ella wasn't always ill. It was, you know, it was either she was very well or she was near death's door. Um, firstborn, highly intelligent, very musical, very bright. She was nine. She had a reading age of about 15. And the only thing I will contradict him the mayor is she wanted to be an air ambulance pilot. That's ah. where her that's where her interest lay. And I'm not sure whether it's because she saw how many times she was rushed in and she knew what's behind, you know. We have the air ambulance here. I'm sure you, you, you must have that in Canada as yes. well. And maybe that really did um, impact her. But she loved it, it didn't stop her, you know, I'm smiling now when I'm thinking about it. It didn't stop her swimming. It didn't stop her playing football. When she was well, she was well. And I definitely have very fond... I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because when, when I heard it initially, I was a bit sad. But I have a smile on my face because I have very fond memories of her sort of dancing around the house. And those memories um, keep me going. Do I miss her? Absolutely. And I do have, you know, other children. But as we all know, your other children are not going to re- replace the child you, you mm. lost. And I, it's lovely speaking to you about her because, yeah, I can go back to a a memory and that will bring a smile to my face as the years have gone on. That's something to be so grateful for because I'm sure there's so much that's wonderful about her to remember. But I'm, I'm wondering, though, did, did she always have asthma? No, she got it. She became ill a few months before her seventh birthday. And initially it was so severe that they didn't even realise it was asthma. Well, she had hypoxic seizures, sort of lack of oxygen due to her, her coughing. She she coughed that se- severely. So in the beginning, they weren't even really sure what it was because that's not how normal asthma presents itself. So hers was rare, life-threatening, as we all, we now know. The area that you lived in, Lewisham, um, by the South Circular, I used to live in London and I know what that place is like. Can you talk about the air quality there and, and how it was? you think it was linked to her health or lack of well, health? Well, it's, it's an extremely busy road. It's like a gateway to Dover. And Dover is places where lorries go to get to Europe and things like that because she was born there, she lived there. And as we look at more and more research... Uh, we now know there is particulate matter 
which obviously is from emissions from cars. You know, she became ill suddenly. What had she been breathing it in for years? Probably. And maybe it got to a stage when her body could no longer contain it. Like I said, her her case was very rare. But let's make no bones about it. In areas of high air pollution, um, there are more hospital admissions for asthma and heart attacks. So Ella's asthma was rare, but but we know now air pollution, what is linked to different forms of cancer, even in dementia patients, they found particular matter on the brain. It's very early days, Laura. We don't know the impact these things have. But rather than wait and worry, cleaning up the air will save governments everywhere, billions or trillions even in healthcare. It's interesting you say it's very early days now because it's more than a decade since Ella died and health professionals back then didn't draw any links to air pollution. But you pushed for the coroner's inquest, which concluded that being exposed to excessive amounts of particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide, which, as you say, is Mm -hmm. released from the burning of fossil fuels, were a factor in Ella's death. Why was it so important to have that on the record? So initially, we were trying to discover, you know, why did she become ill so suddenly? What what was this all about? I don't know how many health people in health knew about it. Some scientists definitely knew about it. I think every month, at least, there's an article now about this. And whereas 11 years ago, that wasn't the case. So I think she, she has definitely helped in raising awareness about this. The fact you and I are talking about this now um, that has all helped. And I'm sure people listening in can relate to this. If you're asthmatic, you know, in days of high air pollution, you, you actually suffer more. Right. And you have the warnings about being careful if you're going to be outside. We hear those all the time now. But uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, though, because we are our show about climate change is that more than 10 years ago, we weren't talking about that as much either. Does this show you what came out of the, the inquest and time since that her death was actually linked ultimately to climate change? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the... Um a lot of these solutions of air pollution will help in climate change. And I I really focus on air pollution, as you can imagine, because that's my story and that's my journey. And I believe it is something normal, average people can relate to, Laura. We found that people who um, are poorer, they tend to live closer to main roads. They are more impacted. So it's also a social justice issue. Uh, Some people are more exposed to dirty air than others. This, Laura, has come out of my 10 years campaigning. I have to admit, when I first started, um, I was a bit green around the years about this. And when I also first started, it wasn't such a a political issue. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but it is really at the forefront of politics in the UK. Yeah, no, it it, it is here as well. Um, But I did want to ask you, since Ella's death, you you have been raising awareness about air pollution, as you said. You're advocating for clean air to be recognised as a human right. I'm wondering what policy changes you're seeing in the UK that are actually giving you hope. Oh, that's a hard one. Yeah, I really... (laughs) I really believe it is our fundamental right, very similar to water. We have the right to drink clean water. I absolutely believe we have a right to breathe clean air. And it is something I'm fighting for. 
I haven't succeeded yet in it going through Parliament. And this is where politics, unfortunately, comes into it. My big ask to all politicians, I have to bear in mind I'm talking to Canada now, is that they not make this a political issue. The research I have and the science, they have it as well. And they know the impact it is having on the people in their countries. And they have a duty of care. And this is something that all fractions should be able to get together in politics and say, let's do this for people. In the UK now, uh, one in two people get, get cancer. And obviously there are other reasons like genetic and all sorts of reasons. But we can't, you know, minimise the fact that air pollution also contributes to this. And, and we know, so in some quarters depending on maybe your race, your class in the UK, you know, um, your actual life expectancy seems to be more. But if you're poor, you live near near a main road, you have a bad diet, then your life expectancy isn't so great. So it's become a social justice issue. I care what happens to children. The fact that children still die from asthma, that's where I am coming from. And I, I hope in my lifetime, it's something we can all agree and move forward on. I can only do so much. And that's why I'm very humble and I ask for the public support in lobbying MPs because the public, they are the ones who are getting ill in the in the UK. Yes, there are other reasons why we have a long waiting list, but dare to air. You know, the coroner said something, Laura. He said, unless the air is cleaned up by the government, children like Ella are going to continue to die. And I look at that as children being everywhere. A life in Canada is just as important as a life in India, as a life in the UK. A child is a child. I should mention, though, for our listeners that, that one of the things that you've been campaigning on is legislation, the Clean Air Human Rights Act, known mm-hmm. as Ella's Law. And it was mm-hmm. pa- it was passed by the House of Lords, which is equivalent to the Canadian Senate at the end of 2022. But it seems mm-hmm. to be stalled in the House of Commons. How frustrating mm-hmm. is that for you? It's very frustrating. It's because, like I said to you, it has got involved in, in politics. I don't think we should be saying to people, well, if you do this, it's going to cost you more. Governments need to help the general public and especially those who are not well off to be able to change their vehicles if if that's what they want to do or make public transport more accessible, more affordable. I don't know my my ignorance listeners how expensive the public transport system is in canada but it's very expensive in a city like london so there needs to be more initiatives people need to be encouraged more we need to roll up public transport uh, more we need to make it accessible we need to make it cleaner we need to make it safer and i think education coming from a background of teaching i am a firm believer that if we continue to educate people not just activists or but actual medical doctors now um, in the UK what is going to be happening is especially for asthmatic children I actually know of those that go in repeatedly they're now going to be looking at where they live and see whether they come from high air pollution areas so a lot has been achieved in Ella's memory and I'm incredibly proud but we've got a long way to 
to go. We have we have one of the highest rates of asthma deaths in Europe. So we've definitely got a long way to be going. As you said, your work isn't ended. This this journey of yours, as you call it, it, it's got so many fronts. It's got your fight for legislation. It's got the lawsuit that is continuing against the government. If if you manage to succeed on all those fronts, what difference would it make um, for others who are living in areas with air pollution from traffic or power plants or even wildfire smoke? What what would the world look like? Well, I when you are one person, it is very hard. I believe children everywhere are equal. So if by trying to get something through the UK government, any other country adopts this, then that's that's a major win. Look, I know people have very busy lives. We are in a cost of living crisis, but I believe health health matters. Um, Ella didn't need to die, and she didn't need to suffer that horrible death. And and if this is going to help any other family out there, it is definitely definitely worth it. And I think we just need to keep the pressure on our leaders, those who make the decisions uh, because they can do more and they can put things through legislation. You also took your fight to the global stage. You you spoke at the UN Climate Summit COP26 in Glasgow. And I'm just wondering at, at the end of all of this, uh, at the end of everything you've been doing, I'm wondering what you think Ella would think of your fight for climate justice. I think she'll be happy that I didn't give up. There are, everyone can imagine, uh, there are very difficult stages in a journey like this. I'm glad I did it. I would do it again. It's given me the answer why my daughter died. Health matters. And like Ella showed, you know, she was here for just a short while. And I am incredibly proud um, that her face and her journey, her story has has highlighted this to so many people. Rosamond Adu Kissy Deborah, thank you so much for sharing your memories of Ella and uh, your your continuing fight for justice. Laura, thank you for having me and thank you to your listeners for listening. And I hope more and more and more join the big ass of their politicians and leaders for clean air for everybody. I'm sure Rosamond's words must resonate with a lot of people living in Canada, people with children who worry about asthma or other conditions that they might have that are exacerbated by things like air pollution or wildfire smoke. We spoke to a mother several months ago uh, whose son died after an asthma attack, and, and she believes wildfire smoke was certainly a contributing cause in his death. And now she is now campaigning for personalized air quality monitors because of that. So these tales are not going away, this heartbreak for parents and the continuing fight to, as Rosamond said, have a right to clean air. It's still officially winter, though depending on where you live in Canada, it might not feel like it. Just a few days ago, Alberta declared the start of the wildfire season 10 days earlier than usual. And the embers from last year's record-setting wildfire season are still smoldering under the surface in parts of B.C. and Alberta. They're called zombie fires, still alive underground. 
And they're not unusual, but given how warm and dry it's been, some worry that a new season of wildfires will be here sooner rather than later, and that leaves precious little time to prepare. What it looks like for me is trying to recover still from last year and get ready for what I thought was not going to happen until April. That's Sonia Leverkus. She's a wildland firefighter crew leader in Fort Nelson, B.C., and an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta. Last year, she spent eight months fighting wildfires in B.C., and in the beginning of January of this year, she and others in her community started gearing up for the upcoming season. We had eight deaths last year on fires in Western Canada, and that is very present in my mind still, along with all the stress, the lack of sleep, the traumatic experiences that we all went through. And so it, it still feels like we haven't had enough time to get recovered, let alone now get ready, because here we go again. And there are still 92 active fires in British Columbia, another 54 in Alberta, according to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre. Jennifer Baltzer is a Canada Research Chair in Forests and Global Change at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. She says fires that never really flame out could become more common. We have climate warming and drying leading to these much bigger, um, more widespread, more severe wildfires. You know, part of that change in fire behavior is this, you know, with droughtier conditions, this ability for fires to be lasting over winter in ways that they haven't as frequently in the past. On next week's episode, we'll bring you more stories about wildfires and how people are working now to be ready. In Banff National Park, an emergency management workshop brought citizens from across the Métis Nation together. Dane D'Souza is the Climate Change and Emergency Management Policy Advisor for the Métis National Council and a citizen of the Métis Nation of Alberta. This is an opportunity for us to come together this week and start to have a conversation as a sovereign, proud Métis Nation on how we're going to get it right and how we're going to build emergency management and resiliency for us in a way that not only honours our culture, our tradition, our identity, but also recognizes the current context of emergency management in Canada, recognizes the current context of wildfires, climate change, natural disasters, infectious disease, you name it, all these things are interconnected. And uh, that is our hope, is to continue to build not only in a way that provides for our citizens, but is at the forefront and leading and showing how it can be done in a good way. We'll hear more on all that coming up on our next show. We've got some time now for some other climate stories in the news this week. The city of Chicago is the latest to join a list of civic and state governments in the United States suing fossil fuel companies. The lawsuit lists oil giants such as BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil and Shell. It alleges they intentionally misled the public about the harmful impact of their products, despite knowing of the climate danger posed by oil and gas. Chicago is also suing the nation's largest fossil fuel lobbying organization, the American Petroleum Institute. It alleges the organization worked with the other defendants to deliberately sow doubt about the climate crisis. A representative of the institute says the lawsuit lacks merit. There aren't any similar cases against corporations in Canada, though several municipal governments are exploring legal action. 
Chevron Canada has relinquished 23 permits for oil and gas exploration off the BC coast. They were the last remaining permits that were still valid, having been issued before a 1972 moratorium on exploring for fossil fuels in the area. Several of those permits overlapped with marine protected areas. Ottawa says the move fulfills a condition in the federal government's commitment to an Indigenous-led conservation initiative. The federal government is cutting the amount of financial relief small businesses will receive from carbon pricing revenues, so it can increase the size of the rebate it's providing to rural families. That's despite the fact the government still owes businesses more than $2.5 billion in promised carbon pricing revenues from the first five years of the program. Small businesses were already paying more than they were getting back. The change will make that shortfall even worse, according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. We have a lot more coming up on the show, including what ice skating drag queens can tell us about climate change. How do you get people to listen to something? Well, the first thing you do is you show them a beautiful costume, you sing them an amazing song, you make them giggle and laugh. And then that's how the Trojan horse works. (laughs) You know, you show them the horse and then the truth can be mingled in that and you can still laugh. Okay, let's try that out. That's coming up a little later on the show. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Now, the last time we talked to our next guest, he was psyching himself up for his first Saskatchewan winter. So, Abe, how's it been? Oh, it's been interesting, Laura. Uh, I think starting off with that deep freeze where it went down to minus 50, which I am absolutely not used to. And I know a lot of Canadians aren't. Um, But it's been really warm since then. And so I've enjoyed like going out in the sun and going for walks when it's only minus 10 or minus 20, which again, being from BC six months ago, (laughs) I know it's new, but I, I think the one thing I've really enjoyed about being on the prairies in particular is being able to go outside and play on outdoor hockey rinks just because they're everywhere. And so that's been a ton of fun. Oh, that's the best thing about trying to adjust to colder temperatures when you're from out here is learning how to embrace winter. So good on you. Have you been scoring lots of goals? Oh, it's been fun. I scored, I had a hat trick my first three on three game. And, (laughs) you know, it's just been uphill since then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Abbe, before we go any further, maybe you could just introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, great to be back. My name is Abbe Singh Suchel. I am the founder and executive director of Break the Divide, a nonprofit connecting young people to talk about climate change and mental health. I'm a student at the University of Regina, studying educational psychology, looking at nature connectedness and mental health. And, And so I'm very passionate about the ways that we can incorporate our emotions into how we create 
long-term sustainable climate action to build a future that's just and sustainable. And that is why you are our mental health columnist, Abhi Singh Satchel. Welcome back to What on Earth? Great to be here, Laura. The other thing that happened since the last time we spoke is that you went to the International Climate Conference COP28 in Dubai. How much discussion was there in Dubai about mental health? This was the first ever COP where there was actually a dedicated day for health, a health day. And at this health day, there was a lot of talk about mental health. So this was, this was sort of the first time mental health had ever made the agenda the way that it did at COP. And so not only were there a lot of side panels and discussions just informally about mental health, which I was really lucky to be a part of, um, actually at the formal level and at the ministerial level, we had national governments mentioning mental health for the first ever time. And what kinds of conversations did you have at COP about this? You know, one of the things that COP really did for me when I'm thinking about the discussion of mental health there was reframe the conversation from just a focus on eco-anxiety, ecological grief. Like when we're thinking about climate change and mental health, or at least for me going into COP and throughout my experience in this field, the predominant way of talking about this was through the lens of anxiety for the future or anxiety for today, specifically around young people and the idea that young people are growing up in a world that's increasingly uncertain, that there's more unpredictability. And as a result of that, there's a lot of justifiable anxiety about the future and that these emotions are rational, they're rational responses to a crisis that we're facing. At COP, just because of the international nature of people that were there and the existing research on the subject, it really expanded my horizons to better understand mental health responses to climate change in the context of immediate natural disasters that communities are experiencing today. I can see how that's a big shift. We're not just talking about vague anxiety about some far-off climate future. We're talking about how people are coping after living through climate disaster. So what difference do you think it could make to see more of a focus on mental health for people who are on the front lines of climate change in Canada? I think it really broadens this conversation around mental health. And I, I think, at least for me, it, it makes it so that it's a topic that I can actually talk to more people about. Oftentimes, I'd say climate anxiety is thought about as a sort of privileged, overly white, wealthy phenomenon that only those that don't have to worry about other issues can actually worry about climate anxiety. Uh, but I really think that this framing of climate change and mental health reminds us that all of us are constantly impacted by the climate crisis in so many different ways. And whether it's feelings of guilt or overwhelm or burnout for activists that are working on this issue or some of the very direct experiences of PTSD or the other intense sort of responses to immediate disasters that come up. Those are all actually very valid and rational responses, uh, sometimes biological responses to these big issues. And so I think this focus on the more immediate impacts of climate change on mental health can actually be helpful to bring people into this discussion of better just understanding impacts of climate change on health. Now, I just have to tell you, um, this, this reminds me of something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show. The government of Alberta held a town hall meeting to talk about drought conditions in the province. And the bureaucrat running that meeting raised the issue of mental health unprompted and urged farmers and ranchers to reach out to the Alberta Farm Mental Health Network for help if they need it. And that certainly caused us to pay attention. What does that tell you? 
That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, you, you know, that makes me think just about the ways that we are constantly talking about mental health and t- constantly talking about climate change without saying those words. I mean, the issue of farmer mental health is fundamentally a climate mental health issue, that there is increased uncertainty, unpredictability, uh, and that creates such a stress on people that are creating our food. I mean, research from New Zealand actually suggests that with every degree of increase of average temperature, there's an increase in farmer suicide globally. So I think it's fascinating that the government of Alberta is talking about mental health in the context of drought without saying the words climate change. I, I think it speaks to how perhaps those who do understand and believe and want to take climate action might better communicate with people. Well, well I, it's interesting, Abe. I think what we're circling around here when we talk about about this sort of more broadly based approach to, to mental health and climate change is it's really about community, isn't it? And I'm wondering what individuals can do to support community well-being when disasters happen. I, I think there's so many different ways that you can be there for people. And starting these conversations where people feel safe to talk about how they're, how they're feeling. I mean, at the individual level, when crisis hits, to support community well-being, people can be there for other people by creating space to talk about these topics. I think that's the first and immediate step. But at, at a broader level, I think a lot of this work starts in advance of disasters, the stage that we're at right now in our communities. I mean, despite so many communities already experiencing natural disasters, I know it's, again, the driest season in the prairies that it's been in a, in a long time. And when we're thinking about these issues like drought, thinking in advance of the ways that your unique skill sets, your unique community connections can support one another when disaster hits, Having evacuation plans in advance, for example, before uh, a forest fire hits your community. Those are things that actually do make a huge difference because there's a key difference between communities that stay connected and communities that don't when we're looking at what happens after a natural disaster. And, And so for communities that do end up staying connected and support one another, there's often a decrease in mental health issues after these disasters. And, and that's actually a really significant amount that really tells us the importance of community, not just to cope with climate anxiety, but to actually adapt and become more resilient. As climate change becomes more and more of a lived reality for Canadians, how does the, our mental health system need to adapt? Right now, our mental health care system doesn't support all the people that it needs to, whether that's because of issues of access, uh, stigma that exists out there. And and so I really don't think that our one-on-one care model of mental health will scale for the climate crisis. We can't just support every person who's anxious about climate change or is dealing with uh, physical climate disasters and, and sort of coping with that. We can't just pair every one of those people with a psychologist just because we don't have the capacity. And so instead, the way that our mental health system needs to adapt is to be more community-based, to think about mental health in different contexts. And to diversify what mental health care actually means involves thinking about things like a community town hall as mental health care, thinking about check-ins with your neighbor as mental health care. Now, obviously, this doesn't replace that sort of clinical or scientific expertise that Uh, clinicians do have. But for a vast majority of people, if our mental health care system can actually build in ways for people to not be so isolated, for example, I mean, we're in the midst of a loneliness epidemic. We, as especially young people nowadays, I'd say, 
aren't getting connected with many people. And that has really bad impacts on mental health, too. Are, is there anything that you're doing to try to address that gap in your own work? Absolutely. I, I think when we're thinking about the ways that people are isolated and this lack of avenues for people to talk about climate change at Break the Divide, the nonprofit that I've been working on for the many past years, uh, we're launching a few different programs. We're connecting high schools across the country with one another through video calls to talk about local impacts of climate change and uh, facilitate knowledge exchange between communities across the country. And probably by the next time we chat, Laura, I'll have some results on how those conversations have been going. But in downtown Toronto, we're actually launching and recruiting participants for a program right now to take international students and newcomers to Canada, new immigrants, through a series of conversations and dialogues to talk about climate change, mental health, and community and identity. So pairing all those topics together to reduce the isolation that newcomers might feel while creating avenues to talk about climate change and mental health. And I, I think a key part of all of that for that program actually, is allowing people to feel like they can show up in their most authentic selves and actually learn to care for the climate. It's hard to care for Canada and Canada's environment if you don't feel like you're a part of that. And so building avenues, like really to, for people to feel like they're a part of a community and feel like they can talk about these issues. All right, well, we will leave it there for now, but we will be talking to you again. Abe Singh Sachal, thank you. Until next time. Yeah, until next time. Hopefully it's spring by then. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. We've been talking this month about how warmer weather is putting a damper on winter fun in many places. So we couldn't resist revisiting a similar story we brought you last winter around this time. It's about a skating show one that puts climate at center stage, but in a way I'm betting you've never seen before. There are drag queens playing the roles of fossil fuels and a penguin moonlighting as a corporate mascot. They're all part of Beards on Ice, created by the Bearded Ladies Cabaret in Philadelphia. But here's the thing. For opening night, the show's warning about a warming climate became, well, an unexpected reality. So we talked to two of the creators to find out what happened. My name is David Devan, and I'm the general director and president of Opera Philadelphia and a performer um, with uh, the Bearded Ladies When on Ice, and my pronouns are he and him. Hi, I'm John Jarbeau. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the artistic director of the Bearded Ladies Cabaret. I play Miss Homo Sapiens in the Beards on Ice show, and I also directed it and co-wrote it. So David and John, Hello. 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 Great to be here. Okay, John, Beards on Ice is your brainchild. What inspired you to create a drag show that's focused on climate change? I think, you know, sometimes ideas come from an issue and sometimes ideas come from an impulse or a pleasure. And honestly, uh, David and I have been friends for years uh, before beautifully running opera companies. David was a nationally competitive pair skater in Canada. And so we go skating every single year and we were dreaming about what oh, one day we'll do an ice show. And when I thought about what the content of the ice show should be, I was thinking about and talking with the Bearded Ladies team about making a climate change theme show. There's something really ironic about doing a climate change theme show on an artificial ice rink. And the premise that we came up with, it's the climate change issue is so impossible, almost as impossible as getting drag queens to skate. <laughs> so 
So if we can, <laughs> if we can in under an hour, get a bunch of drag queens to skate on ice beautifully, then maybe, perhaps, maybe we can solve climate change in under an hour. Um, hey, so, in under an hour, congratulations. And just a point, I mean, it turns out it's not that hard to get drag queens to skate. Um, <laughs> How about to when skate we were well? Getting ready for, when we were getting ready for the show, one of my um, fellow fossil fuels, Cole, um, we were going around the circle saying what our skating experience was. And, and, and Cole said, oh, skates, I've never been on them. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be like the longest <laughs> show of my life. It turns out, I think when your center of gravity is super high by with uh, stilettos and you have to um, run around, um, turns out you can glide on skates. Not that hard. <laughs> Okay, I'm glad to hear that because you've got an audience there watching you. David, maybe you can give us a little bit of of an idea of what happens in the show. Yes, I'm hearing about the characters now. I understand coal is a character and oil. And so maybe what actually happens? What does the audience see? So, you know, uh, poor Miss Homo sapiens is um, having some struggle skating as she hits the ice and needs to muster some energy um, and some power to really figure out how to be on control on the ice. And so she relies on the things that she gets her power from. And this is our, her three friends, coal, natural gas, and oil. And um, it turns out oil actually picks her up and uh, starts doing spiral sequences and everything starts to change until the glacier makes an entrance, singing Celine Dion, of course, and uh, the fossil fuels, myself included, with hair dryers dismantle the glacier um, through the costume, leaving them costumeless on the ice and drag them off. That's how things start. (laughs) And which Celine Dion is it? My heart will go on. Oh, oh for sure. And, and <laughs> yes, right. And, well, and, and and Miss Miss Homo Sabian sings, "You light up my life uh, for oil." Oh gosh, you guys. <laughs> yeah, the the premise is to bring, and I feel like we're feeling this as we're talking. We're partnering with a bunch of climate justice groups: Philadelphia Climate Works, Penn Environment, Philadelphia Thrive, Philly Jobs for Justice. Physicians for Social Responsibility, all of these organizations. And what we're hearing from the climate activists that we're talking to is like, oh, it feels so good to have some joy and absurdity brought into this conversation. It's really a silly piece about how humanity is an addict. We're addicted to to fossil fuels. Your first show, though, didn't go as planned. John, can, can you tell us about what happened? Yeah, I mean, we've been rehearsing for weeks. The weather was a combination of in the, you know, like high teens in Celsius, or around 17 degrees Celsius. Um, and what happens when the sun's shining down on the ice is the top becomes slush. Um, and that then mixed with some warm rain, and it was dangerous to skate. We couldn't actually use the ice. So we had to cancel the opening night of our climate change-themed drag ice show because of climate change. Did did it feel sort of like you guys were getting a, a message from the universe or a sign? I, I found it to be really humbling. I mean, it was absurd. It made me laugh. I was disappointed because we've been working with these amazing bearded ladies performers and the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation for weeks to like make this happen. This has never happened in Philadelphia before, this drag I show. And we had all these climate justice groups coming to table. So it felt very sad to postpone, but it was also speaking to the seriousness of the issue. And I think it's been a, the irony of it has been useful 
and I think getting the message out about the show, and ideally at the end of the game, we want to have people more involved in the everyday climate justice work that's happening in Philadelphia and realizing that climate justice is is not just about fossil fuels. It's also about racial justice. It's also about the increased houselessness in the city. It, it's about economics. It's, it's so much bigger of an issue. Um, so hopefully some of that, some of this ironic <laughs> closure of our opening night can open some doors to some deeper engagement with the material, which in, in the end is the whole goal. Art is a means to this end. Now, we, we touched on this already, but I just want to again zoom out for a minute that because climate anxiety can touch so many people, can sometimes make them feel powerless, make them feel alone. David, what, what does the art of drag have to teach people about the power of bringing issues like this to center stage? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, drag has this amazing um, capability of, um, because in its extreme, it can deal with things with a camp level that um, Mm -hmm. lets down your guard and brings you into a moment in a space and then sort of wallops you, (laughs) can wallop you um, with the actual, with the truth, um, because it breaks things down. And I think um, drag artists have done this for ever since there was drag and that and, and they bring truth to things uh, by creating a sort of a artificial world for you to inhabit and let down your guard on your day to day and i think doing that on ice um just brings a whole other level to it um uh which is unforeseen um and also it's you know um sort of anything that's virtuosic um, because these these queens are singing. Um, so you know, singing and while on ice and in drag just has you leave your office life behind and whatever problems you were having with the world and just uh, allows you to be fully present in the moment, both with joy and then, you know, truth. And when you think you've spoken to this already so well, John, what what to you is the role of humor? joy, absurdity when it comes to grappling with climate change? I mean, and I'm learning this from uh, the collaborators that I'm working with. And I think, I think one of the things about, you know, climate change is that we can't do anything as individuals. We have to see ourselves as a collective, which is why it's so important to feel the feelings as a group, um, however multifaceted they are. I think oftentimes in a, you know, patriarchal white supremacist colonial kind of bubble, the answers were given to the questions of like, how do we survive? How do we deal with climate change are in the lens of white supremacy, in the lens of capitalism, in the lens of patriarchy. And I think the absurdity that we're trying to bring to the end of the show where there's a polar bear singing, I am a walrus, you know, and I'm like dancing, ice dancing with a corporate penguin mascot like that absurdity is ideally breaking that structure and offering different questions and different answers and saying the thing that we're all thinking in the silliest possible way. But as David is saying, like bringing truth, truth into the room and it is funny and it is not funny all at the same time. And I, I don't, I think if we don't laugh, we don't take off our armor. Um, And it can be hard in a, in, in a city landscape where everyone's dealing with a lot we're still in a pandemic like how do you get people to get rid of the politeness get rid of the um 
the kind of armor that they build up throughout the day. How do you get them to, to listen to something? Well, the first thing you do is you show them a beautiful costume. You sing them an amazing song. You make them giggle and laugh. And then that's how the Trojan horse works. <laughs> you know, you show them the horse and then the truth can be mingled in that. And you can still laugh. You can still laugh. You can still be human through acknowledging the radical crisis that we're in. Um, and the great opportunity we have as a as a species to come together and like it's amazing that like i see david skate like david's actually a skater i see him skate and spin and i'm amazed i'm like humans are so virtuosic if we can do this can't we can't we figure this out can't we get rid of our addiction and i know that's reductive um and silly but uh, there's something to it. It's not silly for me, John. I'm doing this at 60. <laughs> it's <a> miracle. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> just to put it all in perspective, uh, <laughs> with a two-foot um, oil Garrick on my head, um, uh, you know, come on. Um, uh, so, yes. <laughs> well, listen, you two, you've given me such a great laugh talking about all of this and, and, and a lot to think about. And I just wanted to thank you both so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. So great being here. Take care. So much fun to hear that again. The conversation was from a year ago. What are the bearded ladies up to now? John tells us they're working on a number of shows, including a benefit cabaret to save Philadelphia from climate change on March the 30th. And John says she and David are working to bring back beards on ice next winter, bigger, better, and hopefully frozen. And that makes me think of other places that depend on skating as part of their celebration of winter. Most notably for me, it's the Rideau Canal in Ottawa that I used to skate on when I was going to school there and when I lived there this year. It was open for a few days. I know people got out on it, but the ice was apparently pretty chippy. Still, they seemed to be thrilled that they were able to get back to something that they love so much and to celebrate winter with it. from a few of you with questions about EVs and hybrid cars lately. Uh, we always hear about that, I gotta say. And we'd like to hear from even more of you, if you can believe that. What on earth, Rachel Sanders is here to talk about that. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Okay, I promise I'm working on a story for the show, but first I need to tell you my personal story. So if you'll remember, we featured my old beater of a Honda Fit on the show a few weeks ago. Ah, uh, yes, the old reliable Honda Fit internal combustion engine. You mentioned it when you were answering a listener's question about whether gas cars can be converted to electric, right? That's right, yeah. And we found out that it is possible to convert gas cars to EVs, but for my old Honda Fit, it would be both impractical and expensive. The thing now is that it's actually a moot question for you. Yes, sadly it is. 
right after we aired that story about EV conversion, I was in a minor collision. Uh, no one was hurt, and I just want to say that it was not my fault. Uh, but my poor 16-year-old car is a write-off. Oh, boy. What are you going to do? I'm not sure yet. I live in a big city, and we've got good public transportation systems and a car share program. So for now, I can make do. And I'm going to be thinking a lot about whether I really need a car long term. But this is also a good chance for me to do some more research on EVs and plug in hybrids and maybe answer a few more listener questions. Oh boy, you'll be in the right position to do all of that in the driver's seat, so to speak. Sorry about that. What kinds of questions have we been getting lately? Well, we heard from listener Martha Lane last week. She says, about five years ago, we purchased what I would call a traditional hybrid car, one that combines battery use with conventional gas and charges itself. We love it, but this type seems to be disappearing from the market. I keep wondering why these are not more widely available. Could they not help reduce fossil fuel use in the interim to give the infrastructure issues associated with plug-in hybrids and all electric vehicles time to get sorted? Perhaps you can help me understand why this is apparently not the case. And that is a good question, Martha. It is. Yeah. And I'm looking into it. We also heard from listener Bruce Wilkinson. He said, I'm a senior and I don't drive a lot, approximately 7,000 kilometers per year. To me, that seems like I'm not contributing as much to transport pollution as many of my neighbors and fellow citizens. So Bruce said that he doesn't think buying an EV makes sense in his case. It's not going to reduce emissions as much as it would for people who drive a lot. And it wouldn't save him as much on fuel costs either, which is an important consideration given how expensive EVs are and the resources that it takes to build them. So he's wondering what to do. That's another good question. If you don't drive much, does it make sense to buy a new EV or keep using your old gas car? Yes. And I want to hear from more listeners who are thinking about buying electric vehicles, specifically if you're in the market for an EV. I'd like to hear what people are looking for and any challenges people are having. Yeah, well, you've actually asked me some of those questions. (laughs) since I own an EV. Um, But we have heard that there are some challenges finding some kinds of EVs in Canada right now. So listeners, if you're on the hunt for an EV or a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid, drop us a line and let us know how things are going. You can email us at earth at cbc.ca. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Laura. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review or tell a friend about the show. We would really appreciate that. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Ben Shingler. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.